Well, uh, this morning we're going to be continuing our series called Happy Church, where we're trying to recover what biblical happiness really looks like, and also to preach the idea that God wants us to be happy. And that happiness is only going to come when you know God and when you follow him. And just to recap, when you look all throughout Scripture, the theme of happiness pops up all over the place. Whenever you see the word blessed, it really should be read as happy. Because in the original languages, blessed and happy mean the exact same thing. And as a Christian, you have a lot to be happy about because God has done so much for you through Jesus Christ. And he's given you the tools that you need in order to find true happiness and fulfillment in your lives. And this morning, I'm going to be talking about one of those tools that he's given us to find happiness. And that is his word, the Bible. Now, I'm guessing that most of you have heard a sermon or two about the Bible in your time. I hope so. I know I have. And most of the time when you talk about the Bible, not preach from the Bible, but about the Bible in a sermon, it almost always deals with why you can trust it and why you can believe it to be true. You know, here's scientific proof why you can believe the Bible's true, or here's evidence why you can trust the New Testament manuscripts. I've preached those sermons before from this very pulpit, and sometimes we do need to hear those sermons. But rarely do I hear sermons about how the Word of God makes you happy by nourishing you and strengthening you in the Christian life. I think as evangelical people, we hold the Bible to be God's true, infallible, inerrant word, but we're content to leave it to gather dust until a crisis of faith occurs or when the preacher tells you to crack it open once a week. When I became a Christian, it was a whole new thing for me. My whole world had changed I remember going through a rough time as a teenager. You know, you're a teenager, every time is a rough time, okay? And I remember praying over some little stupid issue, you know, God, why are you doing this to me? Please just take me out of this mess. And that night, I had a dream where I opened up my Bible to a random verse, and it said, the righteous person has so many troubles, but the Lord delivers them, him, from all of them. And when I woke up, those words, I thought those words were just too good to be true. But I looked it up in the Bible, and lo and behold, Psalm 34:19, the righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. I'd never seen that verse before in my life, and yet God revealed it to me in a dream. And at that time, I really thought it was an encouragement. God had heard my prayer, and he sent those words, especially for me, to comfort me. But I didn't realize until this past week as I was preparing this sermon that it wasn't really an encouragement. It was a reproof. Because God has given us all the information and guidance and wisdom we could ever ask for in the pages of this book, the Scriptures. And here I was saying, Your word isn't good enough. We ask God for crumbs when he's given us his word to feast on. What I want to do this morning is, is just reflect on how the word of God nourishes our souls and how we can read the Bible in such a way that grows us closer to Christ and makes us happy as individuals and happy as a church. But before we do, will you pray with me? 
Dear Heavenly Father, I, I thank you so much for this opportunity where we can come, we can worship you, we can give you the praise and the honor and the glory that you deserve. And I pray this morning that you'll open our hearts and our minds and our eyes to the different things that you want us to learn this morning from your most holy word. For it's in the name of your son, Jesus, do we pray this. Amen. So whenever I talk about the goodness of Scripture, I almost always begin with Psalm 19. Because I think it really exemplifies that Scripture is God's holy word. It's his revelation to us about who he is and what he wants us to do about it. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. So this psalm begins with the psalmist proclaiming how all of creation testifies to the glory of God. He's made every single thing. It's beautiful. There's nothing like it. Creation demonstrates God's true power and his true sovereignty. But what I like to point out about this psalm is that the first four verses describe how creation speaks to us. Creation reveals who God is without even saying a word. And yet everyone hears how creation praises the name of God. This is called general revelation because it's for everybody. And I think what the psalmist really wants to emphasize here in this text is that everyone can feel and see God's creation and nothing is deprived of what he's made. Think about it for a second. When you're swimming in the lake or in the ocean, you're swimming inside something God has created. And when we eat a vegetable or piece of fruit, you're tasting what God has made. Yes, the farmer harvested the crop, but it was God who created the seeds. So we can all taste and feel what God has created. But the psalmist kind of takes an interesting turn because he moves away from talking about the majesty and the glory of the created order, the general revelation, to describe the beauty of God's written word, which is special revelation to us. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect. It refreshes the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They're more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. So the psalmist not only delights in what he can see that God has made, but also in the way that God has revealed himself to us through Scripture. And back in those days, the people of God only had the first few books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers. So the psalmist is primarily talking about the law of Moses, the law of God that he gave to his people, Israel. Now, when you and I today in the 21st century read through all these laws, we think to ourselves, and I know you think this, 
this is so boring and so unnecessary to read. I mean, planting two, two different seeds into the same crop. I don't care, okay? But what you have to understand is that the purpose of these laws that God set forth was to serve as an identity marker for his people Israel. If they followed God's laws, they would demonstrate that they were God's people. And when they followed God's law, they would find true life in being children who follow him. When we think of law here, we usually get a little bit uncomfortable. Because as Christians, we're not bound by the law. We don't have to obey a bunch of rules to get to heaven. Jesus took care of all that for us. We don't need to worry about this anymore. But when a holy God tells you to be holy and obey his law, you do it. Because not only will you have a relationship with him while trusting him and obeying him, you'll get life out of following him. And that's why the psalmist can say that the law of God will give him joy and happiness. It's sweeter than anything he'll ever eat. It's more valuable than gold. It's perfect. It endures. It's because trusting God and following what his word says is the key to true happiness. It is the Christian source of pure joy. This book is where you learn about how much God loves you, how much you mean to him, and how he plans on giving you life abundant now and forever. And the psalmist goes on to say this. He says, but who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So basically what the psalmist is saying here, he says, look, without your word, I have zero direction. And if I sin sin against you, forgive me for doing so, because you've made it very, very clear to me what you want and what you don't want. And this is what God's word does for you. It clearly shows you what God's will is for your life and clearly shows you what's bad for your soul. Think about it. Without scripture, you wouldn't know who God is. You wouldn't know who Jesus is. You wouldn't know that God loves you and has an eternal plan for your life that you're a part of. You wouldn't know that God is close to the brokenhearted. You wouldn't know that God is a loving father that wants good things for you. Without scripture, you don't know God. It's as simple as that. The same breath that Adam had in his lungs was the same breath that inspired Moses and David and the prophets and Paul and Peter to write the words of scripture. So God has revealed himself to us, not only through creation, but also through his word, the Bible. And it's in the pages of scripture that we come to know who God is. I love Psalm 1, the very, very first Psalm, because I think it more clearly illustrates the benefits and the joys of following God's word. He says, blessed or happy, like we talked about last week is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person's like a tree 
planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season and whose leaf doesn't wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They're like the chaff which the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So the psalmist is like, look, the person who meditates on God's word, who loves it, who embraces it, who internalizes it, who follows it, will be happy and will be spiritually prosperous. And I love how the psalmist connects reading God's word with finding happiness and righteousness. Because the more you, you feed yourself with the word of God, the healthier you're going to be in so many ways. And we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. So just kind of to recap, to summarize what I'm saying, the word of God is good because through scripture, we understand who God is and what he expects from us as well. And I think that most of us can mentally ascend to that idea. We can believe it, we can buy it. But I think most of us just like knowing that Scripture is there when we need it. In times of trouble, we'll look to Scripture for comfort and for hope. But I think when we take this approach, we're missing out on the joy that comes from knowing God's Word intimately. I think Martin Luther put it best when he said this. He says, one thing and only one thing is necessary for the Christian life, for righteousness and freedom. That one thing is the most holy word of God, the gospel of Christ. The soul can do without anything except the word of God. And where the word of God is missing, there is no help for the soul at all. The word of God is what feeds our souls. And when our noses aren't deep into the word of God, we're starving ourselves. And when we starve ourselves, we'll eat just about anything. I want you to take a moment and think about the different things that you consume on a daily basis. I'm not talking about pot roast or chicken or spaghetti or anything like that. I'm talking about culture and ideas and philosophies that you hear all the time and that you actively seek out. The average American, on average, spends about five hours a day watching TV. So you sleep eight hours a day on average. You go to work for eight hours a day, two-thirds of your day is already gone. And with that remaining eight hours of your day, five of those eight hours, on average, is spent watching TV. Now, unless you're watching five hours worth of, Bi- of the Bible being read, chances are your TV consumption is pretty useless. It's pretty unprofitable. Now, some of you might say, well, you know, I'm watching the news. I'm staying informed. It doesn't matter. Regardless, do you know what TV, like watching long amounts of TV does to your soul? The studies show that watching a lot of TV makes you more sluggish. It decreases your capacity to to think critically. It increases your level of antisocial behaviors. And it literally rewires your brain. The science is all out there. It's ridiculous. It's crazy. Now you do this day after day after day. You're being formed into something that doesn't look like a disciple of Jesus Christ. I can guarantee you that. Because you're feeding your soul with stuff that isn't good for you. All the sex, all the advertisement, all the hate, all the vitriol, and the political discourse that you see on TV, it's killing your soul. Now, it might not be TV. It might be music. It might be movies. It might be a video game. It might even be really trashy novels. It doesn't matter. 
What matters is that there are voices out there that are implicitly and explicitly trying to take precedence over the Christian's true source of joy, the Bible. Tim McConnell, in the book Happy Church, he says, Nothing will erode the joy of the people of God more rapidly than separation from the word, which feeds us and nourishes us. The question is, what voices out there are you letting steal your happiness? I'd encourage you this week, take an inventory of all the stuff that you're doing and see where reading God's holy word fits into that. I think you'd be surprised at what you find. So the Bible is God's holy food for our souls. It nourishes us, it sustains us, it encourages us, and it challenges us to follow God even when times get tough. The simple act of sitting down to read God's word is a joy-filled experience that helps us experience happiness in Christ. Now, what can we do to help us read God's word with joy? Sure, you can just pick up a copy of the word and go to town. But I think that there are some ways where we can focus our Bible reading so that we can maximize our joy in feasting on the word. Number one, when we eat the book, as I call it, you need to pray for understanding. Sometimes the Bible can be hard to understand, amen? <laughs> Seriously, the entire book was written over a span of over 1,500 years, and God used dozens of authors to accomplish this task. It's written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and its cultural context is so far removed from ours. But the beauty of all of this is that the same Holy Spirit that, lit- that literally breathed out the words of Scripture to these authors is the whole, same Holy Spirit that abides in us today. And when you come to Scripture, you need to pray that God would help you understand exactly what His Word is trying to teach you. That's why at the beginning of every sermon I preach, I always pray that God would open our hearts and our minds to the different truths that he wants us to learn from his word. Because without the blessing of the Holy Spirit, we're reading scripture in our own power. So when you come to scripture, you've got to pray that God would remove any barrier in your mind or your heart or even in your soul that would make scripture not come alive for you. Number two, I think we need to embrace the wisdom of spiritual mentors and trusted scholars. Sometimes in the church, we have this idea, well, you know, I'm a Christian. I have the Holy Spirit. It's good. I can read scripture by myself and understand it completely fine. You know what? That might be true. But sometimes we forget that really, really smart men and women have spent the past 2,000 years trying to fully understand what the scriptures mean. And it's all for our benefit. For instance, like I've said before, when you read blessed in Scripture, it really should be read as happy. Now, if we didn't have the benefit of folks who translated Scripture into our language, we wouldn't have Scripture in our hands in the first place. But if we didn't have the folks who spent their lives studying the meaning of Scripture, we wouldn't know that the better rendering of Asher and Makarios is really happy. And that rendering changes the way that we understand what it means to be blessed. So when you're reading scripture, grab a commentary. We have a bunch here at the church. I have like a hundred on my computer. I'd love to give you a recommendation. Or you can ask a pastor or an elder or someone you trust in the faith. Because we're here to help you understand what God is saying to you through his word. Number three, when you eat the book, 
You got to eat it through the lens of Christ. Christ is present in the scriptures from the very first verses of Genesis to the very last verses of Revelation. From beginning to end, the Bible is saturated with Jesus. And as a result, you can't really understand the story of God without understanding who Christ truly is. The whole Bible, the whole thing points to Jesus. And because of this, when you read scripture, you need to read it through the lens of of Christ. You're not going to understand scripture if you don't keep Christ in mind. Like when you read through those Old Testament laws, you're going to get really, really bored. Unless you look at those Old Testament laws as being perfectly followed and fulfilled by Christ during his time on the earth. And because of what Christ has done, we don't have to work our way to salvation. Everything in the Old Testament and in the New Testament points to Christ. And we need to faithfully and consistently ask ourselves, where is Christ in this passage? When you're reading your Bible this week, ask that question, because I think that 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 will help you uncover a whole treasure trove of biblical riches. Then finally, when you eat the book, follow it. Like I mentioned last week, James chapter 1, verse 25 says that when you read scripture, when you follow it, you're going to be happy. Trusting God and following God starts with understanding who he is and what he demands of us. And it all begins when we start reading Scripture. If you're having a hard time reading Scripture this week, let me just challenge you. Pick out a verse. Meditate on it. Meditate on what it means. And then try and follow it. Try and do something that um, best demonstrates or embodies what that passage is trying to say. One piece of Scripture obeyed is of greater value in your pursuit of God than a hundred verses read but ignored. What this all boils down to is this, when you talk about the word, God's holy word is, do you trust that what God says is in fact good? That when he tells us to love our neighbors, to love our enemies, to kill our pride, to discipline ourselves and be holy, that it's for our good, that it will bring us happiness? I think sometimes our failure in the church to obey God's word stems from a lack of trust in God. But Jesus tells us that whoever wants to find true life will lose it for Christ's sake. And that when we take up our crosses daily and follow him, we'll find true happiness and true joy in our souls. The Bible just about promises that you will be happy when you trust God and follow what his word says. But it all begins with eating the book, with devouring it, with savoring it, and trusting that God has given us all that we need for life and for godliness and for happiness, that it's profitable for everything in our lives And that we can do good works that help us glorify God and enjoy him forever. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you don't know God. Pick up a Bible at the back. There's a dozen Bibles there at the back. Start with the book of John. Find your true life in the words of Jesus. And maybe you're here. And maybe you're realizing that you're letting these different voices infiltrate your soul. Maybe you need to get more Bible reading into your life. We can help you with that. Regardless of where we're all at, we all need God, essentially. 
And that's what we remember when we take communion. That all of us do, in fact, need God, the sinner and the saint. I don't care who you are. We all need Jesus. When we celebrate communion, we remember that it took the death of God's son, Jesus, to bring us closer to him. In the Old Testament, the priest stood day after day after day after day, offering sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. But when Jesus offered himself as the perfect sacrifice on the cross, he offered the once and for all sacrifice that would pave the way for us to know God and find true happiness and joy. So I'm going to invite the rest of the worship team up here. And in a few moments, I'm going to invite you to come up here and eat the meal that Jesus instituted. Take a piece of the bread symbolizing his broken body. Dip it in the cup, symbolizes his shed blood. Remember that God has forgiven you of all of your sins, past and present and future. And if you don't know Jesus, trust in him for eternal life. Because it says in this book that whoever believes in Jesus won't perish, but will have eternal life. And as we come forward to take communion and worship together, If you need prayer, we'll have some folks at the back ready and willing to pray for you and with you. But as we spend this time with God, I want to leave you with a quote from Happy Church, which I find to be helpful in understanding the power of eating the book. It says, When philosophers and linguists attempt to define joy and gladness and happiness, they return repeatedly to the idea of of well-being and security. Joy seems to be connected to a confidence in our own well-being now and security in the future. When everything around us is in constant flux, security is difficult to know. The unchangeableness of the word of God becomes a dry place to stand in a muddy field, a solid rock in a turbulent river, a harbor from the storm. There is joy and gladness and knowing the solidity of the word. Will you stand with me as we pray? Dear Heavenly Father,